Now take your Bible and open to the book of John, John chapter uh, 15. I'm going to start in verse 12 and read down through verse 17. And as you're turning there, let me remind you also tonight, part three out of uh, Psalm 42, which uh, I think has been uh, an encouraging uh, study. So the final part out of Psalm 42, how do you deal with discouragement, depression? Uh, Why are you downcast, O my soul? So it's a tremendous uh, portion of scripture. I hope you come back for that. John 15, starting in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This command, uh, this I command to you, that you love one another. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you for, again, an opportunity uh, to worship uh, you, to praise you, because, again, you are worthy of our worship and praise. And we thank you for an opportunity to um, study your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would guide us in our study this morning, that our hearts would be uh, made full, or we'd have a clearer, fuller understanding of truth and uh, the portion of scripture uh, in front of us we're so thankful lord for again the the freedom to gather we're so thankful for the truth that has set our souls free and transformed and changed our life through the person of of jesus christ now guide us in our time together as we study your word i pray in christ's name amen well obviously we're studying uh, continuing here in our study in john chapter 15 it's thursday uh, night as you know the final week of our lord's life it's just a Literally, just in a few hours, he's going to uh, die on Friday. Uh, he'll die on the cross. He's spent this last evening, uh, the entirety of the evening, with his disciples. Those are his most intimate friends. It began, as you might remember, in chapter 13 with the 12 of them at the Passover meal there in the upper room. Then, but then Judas was dismissed, um, at Satan having entered into him to betray Christ. And now it's just the eleven. And the eleven, along with the Lord, have left the upper room. They're walking through Jerusalem. They're making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where they'll spend a period of time in prayer, and there Jesus will be arrested. And here in John's gospel narrative of this event, this evening, again, that began back in chapter 13, that runs chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17, being what is known as the high priestly prayer, it has been a series of astonishing promises that Christ has made to his followers. Uh, also warnings along the way, uh, encouragement to them, revealing truth to them, to these 11 who are with him. And as we've just seen in our study previously, the first 11 verses of the chapter, uh, Christ uh, taught his followers the nature of true saving faith. What is it that marks a true follower of Christ? And how do you distinguish someone from uh, someone who's a genuine follower from someone who's a false follower of Christ? And again, I think the context drives of the discussion, it's the defection of Judas that he's trying to answer. How do you deal with Judas? And so the Lord brings forth this illustration of the vine and the branch. And he says there are two kinds of branches, two kinds of branches that make some 
claim of association with the, the vine or with the person of Christ is the reality here. There are unfruitful branches, and then there are fruitful branches. Look back up at the top of the chapter, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Again, that's a claim to deity. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So the unfruitful branches are false followers of Christ as the illustration of the metaphor plays itself out. Those who do not have a true life-giving union with Christ. Those who do not have a true, true life-giving union with the Savior. Those who are only attached to him on some kind of superficial level, such as Judas. And any other false follower of Christ who does not produce the fruit of righteousness in their life. Somebody else came up with this term a long time ago in the history of the church, but it's an apt one. It's uh, referencing to the almost Christian. The almost Christian. The one that makes some kind of claim to Christ, but really doesn't know Christ, really doesn't have the life of Christ flowing through them. The almost Christian, the unfruitful branch. Christ says that they're taken away, they're gathered, they're cast into the fire, and they're burned. Because everyone who's genuinely in union, genuinely associated with the person of Christ produces some kind of fruit, some kind of spiritual fruit. If a person's in genuine communion with Christ, there has to be some evidence of the life of God flowing in and through that person, and that evidence has to be seen to others around them to some level. Because Jesus Christ is the only source of true spiritual life. Jesus Christ is the only source of true spiritual fruit. Only the life of God comes through the person of Jesus Christ and only through one who is in union with Christ and that can only happen for someone who is abiding in Christ. That's the term that Christ uses over and over in this portion. Those who abide in him, those who abide in Christ, those who are in unbroken communion with him, those who are genuinely a part of him. Now the fruitful branches, he says, they're pruned again, verse 2, And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. So those who are in true union with Christ, those who are abiding, the Father comes and he prunes them so that they might bear more fruit. It's the process of sanctification. And as it says in verse 8, by this uh, my Father is glorified. Here it is that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. So again, throughout our lives, we're being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Throughout the various trials and difficulties and situations in our life, the problems in our life, the Lord, the Father, brings the Word of God to bear in our lives. He uses it. He takes it out like a sharp two-edged sword, and he applies it into our hearts and into our lives to make us more fruitful, to make us more like Christ. And then to the 11, he says, verse 3, You are already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. So again, to the 11... Because of the word, these 11 in front of him were genuine followers of Christ. They had been regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit. They have repented and placed their uh, faith upon Christ. They believe upon Christ for salvation. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And then starting in verse 4, as I told you previously, the Lord gives forth benefits, six benefits of what it means to abide with Christ. Six benefits of abiding in him. The first one was eternal life or salvation. And I'll just run through these very quickly just by way of review. The first one was eternal life or salvation. Verse 4 says again, abide in me and I in you. Now remember I told you the word abide really is in the mood of the command. So he's saying, look, stay here. Stay with me. Don't be like Judas. Don't leave. Don't walk away. 
continue to believe upon me, continue to maintain an unbroken communion with me. Because if you abide in Christ, if you abide in him and Christ abides in you, that means that therefore you are now a partaker of the divine nature. That means that you are now a present possessor of eternal life. Because you have the eternal one dwelling within you, God, the eternal God dwelling within us, abiding in us. And again, because God is dwelling within us through the person of the Holy Spirit, that means that you will never die. Because you are having repented and believed upon Christ, the present possessor of eternal life. Because of your union with Christ. Because of his union with you. Abide in me and I in you. The second benefit of abiding in Christ was fruitfulness. Verse 4 again, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He abides in me and I in him. He bears much fruit for apart from me or cut off from me or separated from me, you can do nothing. Fruit is only produced by abiding in Christ. The fruit uh, uh, fruitfulness is only found by abiding in Christ. And again, the fruit that is produced by abiding in Christ is righteousness. Again, it's the process of sanctification. It's beginning. It begins with repentance. You might remember I told you that's the first fruit of salvation. The first fruit of righteousness is turning from sin to Christ. Turning from sin to Christ, being transformed to change from the inside out because of what God is doing within you. Therefore, that results within us righteousness, righteous thoughts, righteous deeds, righteous actions, righteous words. It results in the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit is now dwelling in us which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The second benefit of abiding in Christ is fruitfulness. The third benefit of abiding in Christ was answered prayer. Answered prayer or access to God. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, it shall be done for you. Now again, I told you that's not carte blanche. That doesn't mean it's a blank check. It doesn't mean that, that, uh, that you can get every single request you make. It does mean that every request you make that is consistent with the will and the purposes and the love of God, your Father in heaven, for your ultimate good and for his glory, he will answer. Because the reality is, just like every good father, sometimes our heavenly father says no. When we say no to our kids, it doesn't mean we don't love them. In fact, it means the opposite. We do love them. We have some knowledge that they don't possess, some reason why their request would not be good for them. They may not understand that, but we do as, the, as, as their father. And the same of our Heavenly Father. He knows what's best for his children. And when he says no, uh, then we are left with no other choice except to trust his character, to trust his nature, to believe what he says to be true, to understand and really believe the fact that he has loved us eternally, and therefore he has loved us in time and he has promised to love us eternally in the future and he's loved us eternally and proved it in time by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to stand in our place, to take our sin upon himself, our punishment, so that he might secure our eternal future. I've often said it here before, I see it a lot of times when I'm talking just to people in general, why questions have no answer. Why? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? And sometimes we're left with no answer. So when we don't know, can't answer the question why, then we have to turn our attention to what do we know to be true and then fill our hearts and minds with those realities. 
Again, trusting the nature and the character of God, repeating ourselves truth, just like we're doing in Psalm 42. We're speaking to ourselves, not allowing ourselves to speak, but speaking to ourselves the truth, because we have to be people of the truth. And sometimes I understand life gets difficult, and the rubber meets the road, and there are trials and difficulties and things we can't comprehend, and sometimes we don't have answers, and Christ is the only one that provides those answers for us. And our thinking and understanding of truth can't just be ethereal. It can't just be some kind of answer you put down on the test question uh, to get an A in the class. This is the class, life. And we have to take truth and apply it into our lives and believe, again, the nature and the character and the person of God who's loved us from eternity, who's loved us into time. And he's provided for us through Christ who stood in our, st- in, our, in our place and took our punishment. And Christ was punished so we would not have to be punished. Therefore, we have a tremendous amount of hope, even in a fallen world, that God hears us. He's our Father in heaven. He's well acquainted with our struggles. That's why Christ came. A man of sorrows, what? Acquainted with grief. He knows. The fourth benefit of abiding in Christ was assurance of salvation. Again, verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you may bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So again, if you are in union with Christ, if he is in fact dwelling within you, if you're abiding in Christ, then there'll be evidence of that righteous relationship. There'll be evidence of his righteousness being produced in you and through you. Again, if you've repented and placed your faith in Christ. And if you repented and placed your, cha- your, placed your faith in Christ, and God now dwells within you, then there's going to be a change. There's going to be a change. There's going to be an inside-out transformation because of Christ in you. Then there's going to be fruit. Fruit of the Spirit produced in your life. And when you stop and you start to evaluate your own life, and you see love, you see joy, you see peace, you see patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, uh, 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 gentleness, uh, self-control, goodness, you, you realize that's not of you. That's not your doing. You're not working those things up inside you. That's what God is doing within you. That's God in you changing you. So when you see fruit on a spiritual level, you see even small fruit, you see evidence of a, that transformation of life, that change of life. Therefore, you prove to be a Christ disciple. Right? You, you prove to be Christ disciples. You give yourself assurance of your salvation, that you are genuinely united with the person of Christ, you're a true branch. The fifth benefit of abiding in Christ or of being a true disciple of Christ means that you're loved by him and loved by the Father. Verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you also. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. To be loved by God, loved by Christ. The sixth benefit that Christ lays out here in this text was that we would possess joy. We would possess joy. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. If you want joy, the only place you're going to find from, the only place you're going to find joy is in Christ. Abiding in Christ. So if you're genuinely united with Christ, You will enjoy the gift of salvation. You'll bear fruit, having repented from your sin, living now a transformed life. You'll know that God in heaven hears you and answers your prayers, that you have direct access to him. You'll know that you're loved by God and loved by Christ, and you will experience joy in the fullest measure in your life in spite of and above your circumstances. 
because your sin has been forgiven and God has shown his love into your life. If you fail to abide in Christ, then you'll know the terror of eternal judgment, just like Judas, who walked away from Christ, who walked away from eternal salvation, righteousness, answered prayer, divine love, and everlasting joy, who is now facing forever the eternal horror of his rejection of the Savior. So again, it's important in the context. They're walking out of the upper room. They're headed over to Jerusalem or over to the other side of uh, through Jerusalem to Gethsemane. How do we deal with the issue uh, of Judas? Well, the bottom line is not everybody who looks like they're associated with Christ really is. Right? There are always people who look like they belong to Christ, but they really do not. So Christ is trying to help them understand the importance of genuine saving faith. And again, that's proved by a person's life. And again, failing to produce genuine fruit of righteousness uh, it gives evidence that you're not actually in union with Christ. So uh, this, along with other warning passages, is really a time of self-reflection to stop and ask, uh, do I see the signs of life in me? Is Christ really transforming me from the inside out? If the answer is no, then the next step is repentance, because repentance is always the first fruit of righteousness. Now again, we're just hours away before his betrayal. And again, in the context of Judas's apostasy, uh, his defection, uh, his willingness to be used as a tool of Satan to commit the most heinous act of evil in human history, that is to betray Christ, uh, that will lead to his death on the cross. There's one issue. There's one issue that really overrides and one issue that kind of stands over or dominates the entire night of Christ's betrayal. Now, I've already alluded to it, but I want you to listen carefully to see if you can pick it out. Now, I'm going to go back to the top of chapter 13. You don't need to turn there, but I just want you to listen. And I want to see if you can pick it out. Because I'm going to go through a bunch of verses, and I'm going to do it very quickly. But I want you to listen for the overriding reality that dominates this entire evening, again, in the context of betrayal. This final night that the Lord has with his disciples. And you listen, and I'll have a test at the end, and I'll ask the question and see if you can pass the test, right? See if you can pick it up. Here you go, John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I'm giving you a little hint there, okay? Verse 23, there he was reclining with, uh, uh, there was reclining on Jesus' breast, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Verse 34, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose him to myself. Verse 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our abode with him. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. Verse 28, I said, I go away, I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. Verse 31, but that the world may know that I love the Father as the Father gives me commandment, even so I do. I'm obedient to him. 
John 15, verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 12, this commandment, this is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. Verse 19, if you were in the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Chapter 16, verse 29. For the Father loves you uh, because you have loved me and believed that I came forth from the Father. Chapter 17, verse 23. I am them and I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity. Is praying the high priestly prayer, right? Christ to the Father. That the world may know that you did send me and that you did love them even as you did love me. Verse 24. I desire that they also whom you have given to me um, where I am in order that they may behold the glory which you have given. You did love me before the foundation of the world. Verse 26, <clears throat> I have made your name known to them and I will make it known and that they will love wherever you did love me with them and I in them. Now, uh, here's the test question. Did you hear it? Thank you. One person. Thanks very much. That's better than some Sunday mornings, right? Yeah. The one issue that really overrides the whole um, text there, those different uh, portions of Scripture, the the thing that dominates the night uh, of Christ's betrayal is what? Love. Look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Of the 57 times that John uses the word love, in his book, 33 of them occur in chapter 13 through 17. So you, how do you know that? I counted them. That's how I know. I counted them. I thought, you know, I keep hearing this word repeated over and over again, right? The predominant issue here is the love of God through Christ for those who belong to him. Everything that he said, everything that he's done, uh, washing their dirty feet, it's all done out of love. And even what he's going to do just in a few hours, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So again, Judas, in the context, has committed the uh, uh, this most abject act of satanically inspired evil, right? And he, uh, But God is going to put his love on display in the midst of this satanically inspired evil. God's going to put his love on display. He's going to put his love on display in the person who will be upon the cross, and God is going to put his love on display through the act that that person will uh, achieve, the atonement, the propitiation. And God puts his love on display through, again, both the person and the act on the cross of Calvary, uh, lavishing upon these 11 uh, who are with him, and by extension, all who genuinely believe and all who are genuinely united to Christ, he lavishes upon them his love. His love, his peace, his presence, his righteousness. Again, answered prayer, assurance of salvation, everything that we need for life and godliness. But again, the high point being verse 13 in the verses before us. Love defining the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Love being the defining issue between God and those who belong to him through Christ. Now, I feel like I say this line every single week I come up here. But I think the text in John 15 and this portion we're studying is absolutely fascinating. Now, I just find John compelling. 
And in the section of scripture coming up, he's going to put on display his love, the, the love of Christ, the, the love of God the Father for those, listen, here's the term, for those who are the friends of Jesus. It's the title of the sermon, in case you were wondering. And again, just look at a couple of verses here. Look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Verse 14, you are my friends if... You do what I command you. Verse 15, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. No longer do I call you slaves, but I have called you friends. So now we have slaves who are now friends, called friends by Christ. And there's a lot in that statement. One writer notes this, he says, The Bible calls those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ by many names and titles. Those titles include believers, a beloved of God, beloved brethren, the called, children of God, children of the promise, children of light, sons of the resurrection, Christians, disciples, the elect, the godly, heirs of God, heirs of the promise, heirs of salvation, the righteous, lights in the world, living stones, members of the body of Christ, people of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, the salt of the earth, slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness, vessels for honor, vessels of mercy, the saints, but, he says, friend captures a unique aspect of communion with the Lord. Did you know that the only person in the entire Bible, the Old Testament, who had the privilege of uh, being named a friend of God was Abraham. Only one person in the Old Testament had the privilege of being named the friend of God, Abraham. You see it in Second Chronicles 20, verse 7. Uh, 20, verse 7, uh, Abraham, my friend forever. You see it in Isaiah 41, verse 8, Abraham, my friend. James 2, verse 23 says, the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God. He was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So to be called a friend of God, or in our context in John 15, Jesus calling us his friends, I have called you friends, listen, is an exalted title. It's an exalted title, much more so than uh, being called a disciple. And the text before us is going to lay out, Christ will lay out, John through the teaching of Christ, is going to lay out four major characteristics of being friends of Jesus. But I thought before we get to the four characteristics, it's probably more important to try to get a better handle on the significance of the relationship that Christ is saying that he has with us who belong to him. Because I think we miss the significance in the culture in which we live of the statement, no longer do I call you slaves, but I've called you friends. No longer do I call you doulos, but I call you philos or or beloved. I don't think we get it. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here in an in-depth analysis of the concept of slavery that he introduces. I've done that previously elsewhere, but I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. So at the end of the whole thing, you'll have an opportunity to figure out the definition between a whole lot of time and a little bit of time, right? You can make the, the judgment on that. Now, in the ancient world here, in the time of the pinning of the New Testament, slavery is very common. 
In fact, it's been suggested by historians that slavery was so extensive in this period of time that perhaps one out of every two people was a slave, so perhaps half of the population. So slavery was an existing cultural norm at the time. And almost everything in the Roman culture was done by slaves, from menial tasks to every professional uh, profession or, or skill. Every craft were done by slaves. Uh, doctors were slaves. Teachers were slaves. Secretaries were slaves. It's interesting that the Romans actually despised slavery. Uh, they just didn't mind enslaving other people to do their work. They, they absolutely despised slavery, but they enslaved everybody they could. In some situations, there were good relationships between a master and slave, but that's probably more the exception than the rule. For the most part, the life of a slave was a very unhappy one. Uh, The life of a slave was terrible. It was a grim life, a hard life. Slaves had no rights. Slaves had no protection. Uh, Slaves were treated with no kindness, often abused, uh, brutalized, beaten. Uh, Many of them were killed by their masters. Slaves were seen as nothing more than living tools, again, nothing more than instruments of work. Again, no rights, no protection, no right to kindness. But again, slavery is just part of the culture. It's just part of the cultural norm of the time. Sometimes people became slaves because they were captured in war, prisoners of war. Sometimes they were convicts. Sometimes they were uh, in debt. Sometimes they were kidnapped. Sometimes they were uh, birthed uh, from other slave parents. And it's interesting that as an institution, slavery is never condoned or really directly repudiated in the New Testament by any of its authors. That is, there's never a call in the New Testament uh, to for the open overthrow of the Roman system of slavery, uh, which in many cases was oppressive and cruel. But that doesn't mean that the Bible promotes slavery or support, supports slavery. In fact, in the Old Testament, under the Hebrew law, there was some very definite Uh, clearly to find roles and responsibilities that one had to exercise with regard to their servant or their slave. Uh, The Old Testament uh, command of the Hebrews was that a master was to treat their servant or their slave with a tremendous amount of kindness. In fact, Old Testament law said if you treated your slave cruelly and it affected him in a negative way physically, then he was to be freed, according to Exodus uh, chapter 21. But again, what we're looking at here in the New Testament, the Roman system is not under... Uh, not following that directive, obviously. Uh, the Roman system is something completely different. And again, while the New Testament never calls for the open overthrow of the Roman system of slavery, the Bible, again, doesn't endorse slavery. In fact, the very kind of slavery that we are aware of in this country or familiar with in this country in the sense of stealing people and shipping them across the ocean to different parts of uh, another country, that would have been expressly forbidden uh, with the penalty of death for the one who kidnaps another man uh, in in the Old Testament, Exodus 21, verse 16. And then even in the uh, New Testament, 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, men stealers, kidnappers, forbidden. Now, if a Christian or Christianity as a whole would have called for the abolition of uh, slavery here in the Roman Empire, the Roman military would have risen up and actually crushed and wiped out every vestige of uh, Christianity, which would ultimately not be helpful for the advancement of the gospel. Because everything in the culture, again, is worked by slaves. Christianity, if Christians would have risen up, Christianity would have become an immediate, uh, uh, would have come to an immediate end Uh, One writer puts it like this, the infant religion would have been quenched in blood. It would have been put down immediately. Now again, the Bible doesn't specifically address that issue or 
really any other kinds of social issues because the issue with the Bible is not what men do to themselves. The issue of the Bible is really the, the main interest is man's relationship uh, to God, right? Not, not men's relationship to men, but man's relationship to God. Because no matter what a person's position in his life, in, in life, if they're a slave or free, every man stands equally condemned before a holy God as a sinner. Every man, no matter what station they are in life, uh, are desperately in need of repentance and forgiveness of sin that only Jesus Christ uh, can offer by grace alone, through faith alone, again, in the person of Christ alone. What people desperately need, again, across all uh, uh, social scales, uh, is uh, they need to repent. They need to repent. They need to come to the knowledge of the truth. They need to have their sin forgiven by grace, and then they need to place their faith in Christ because that transformation or that change of relationship it changes a person from the inside out with the Holy Spirit now dwelling within the person who's repented. And if that relationship with God has been settled, that there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who place their faith in the Savior, if that objective um, um, penalty has been taken care of in Christ, then subjectively a person can enjoy peace uh, on the inside. When there's a change of relationship between a person and God, then that changes the relationship between people. Does that make sense? That's the issue. When a man has a right relationship with God, then he's going to have a right relationship with his fellow men. When a man has a right relationship with God, then he's going to treat others kindly and graciously, just as God has treated him so in Christ. The, the issue is not vertical or horizontal. The issue is vertical, right? It's not. We, we focus everything back and forth because we've, we've completely getting, gotten rid of God in every aspect of, of the culture. Nobody even thinks about how does this affect God or what does God think about this because nobody really cares. You can never reconcile men until God and man is reconciled. And once a man is changed or a woman is changed, transformed to the inside out, then they'll start treating others around them differently. That's the issue. So again, slavery is just part of the culture. But slavery, per se, really isn't the issue here in this statement. No longer do I call you slaves or, again, do loss. Because the truth is, in the New Testament, we are called slaves of Christ. See, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 22, Ephesians 6, verse 6. And in the New Testament, we're repeatedly told that we've been bought with a price. Therefore, we are to glorify God with our body. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23. 2 Peter 2, 1. Peter talks about the master who bought them. Uh, in the book of Acts, uh, uh, the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Acts 20, verse 28. In the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and break it sealed, for thou wast slain and did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Now the issue here is anytime you have a slave, you have a what? Huh? Ah, a master. That's the issue. Anytime you have a slave, you have a master. You have a lord. And the most fundamental foundational confession of Christianity is Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, everybody in the culture at the time, they would have said, no, no, they would have said Caesar's Lord. Everybody in the culture would have said Caesar's Lord. Then Christians come along and they say, well, no, no, no. No, no, no. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that's going to cause a little bit of problem, right? A little bit of pressure within the culture. All you have to do to escape the circus, 
to be the main attraction with the Lions in this afternoon's play is all you have to do is just say Jesus is not Lord and Caesar is Lord. Unbelieving culture says no problem, Caesar's Lord. I want out of jail. I'm not going to the circus. I'm certainly, if I'm going, I'm going to be in the stands, not on the arena. Right? Christians come along and they say, no, no, Jesus is Lord. In fact, the Bible says that you can't be a Christian unless you confess and confess the fact that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, you've read it. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart a man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Uh, Romans 10, verse 13, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, no one can even say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So again, the most fundamental, foundational, central, distinctive mark of Christianity, the first essential confession of faith, is the fact that Jesus is Lord. And listen, no man makes Jesus Lord. He is Lord. Acts 2, verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. Now all of scripture emphasizes the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. A kurios is is the word. It's a word that means absolute power. Absolute power, ownership, authority. It's a word that's used some 750 times in the New Testament. And it's a word used with reference to Christ. It is a clear reference to his deity. Because Jesus is Lord. Who is he? He, He's the almighty, eternal, sovereign Lord. He's the almighty, eternal, sovereign God who's become flesh, uh, who is dwelling among men. And again, there's no genuine salvation, no genuine saving faith, unless a person understands exactly who Jesus is, that he is the eternal God. That comes by the mouth of the Savior himself, John 8, 24. For unless you believe that I am... You shall die in your sin. But when you say Jesus is Lord, not only are you identifying him as as deity, but listen, that's slave talk. You're saying that Jesus is the master with with absolute power, absolute dominion. That would have been the same verbiage that a literal physical slave would have described about his owner. He is the Lord. The master. However, it's interesting, I think, that within quote-unquote evangelicalism, again, whatever in the world that is, within evangelicalism, there's a certain group of people who promote that Jesus, that a person can come to Christ without any kind of spiritual commitment to him whatsoever. This group of individuals say that all a person has to do is believe. Believe certain facts surrounding the person of Jesus, and then you can lay claim to eternal life. This group of people would say there's no need to turn away from sin, no need to experience a resulting inside-out change or transformation of life. There's no need for commitment to Christ or willingness even to submit to Christ, to follow him in obedience, to submit yourself and humble yourself to the fact that he is Lord. There's no need for that. They would say that submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ is a human work. They would say that it's a corruption of the gospel, a corruption of grace. 
And again, merely all that one needs to do to obtain eternal life is to quote-unquote believe in Jesus. However, James 2 verse 19 says, You believe God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. James says the demons and Satan himself believe a certain set of facts about Jesus. And they most certainly have no commitment and obedience to Christ. They have absolutely no desire to submit to him or to submit to his lordship. Would we therefore assume that they are saved just because they quote-unquote believe in Jesus? Just because they believe certain facts concerning Jesus or the Christ? And the answer is, of course not. Acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ is a biblical truth, and acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ is no more human work than repentance. Because the Bible calls men to repent over and over again. Matthew 3, 2, Matthew 4, verse 17, Acts 2, 38, Acts 3, 19, Acts 8, 22, Acts 17, 30, Revelation 2, verse 16, and on and on. The Bible calls men to repentance, and the Bible says that repentance is something that God grants. 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant or the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome. He must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses, escaping the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ is no more human work than repentance. Acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ it is no more human work than exercising faith, which Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says is also a gift of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. In fact, the surrendering to Christ in total, in total obedience, surrendering to Christ in his lordship is an important aspect of divinely produced saving faith, and not some kind of human work, not some kind of added thing added to faith. It's it's a God-produced saving faith. So again, to say that the norm for salvation is to quote-unquote accept Jesus as Savior without submitting to him as Lord, and then perhaps somewhere down the road, as this group would say, when you mature, then you might start following him in obedience as a disciple. That's a false dichotomy. That's an untruth. And honestly, it's an utter travesty. Because the doctrine of no lordship salvation, as they would refer to it, is really a deficient doctrine of salvation. There's a chorus of people out there who promote this and call for this kind of idea. There's a chorus of people out there who would call what we would understand as biblical truth, the view that salvation for a person uh, must, uh, through trust in Jesus Christ as a savior from sin, must also commit oneself to that person of Jesus Christ as Lord uh, and to his sovereign authority. There's a group of people who call that heresy. I've actually been called a heretic for teaching this. Literally. They say, well, that's unbiblical. It's a false gospel. It's work salvation. There's a whole lot of people who promote this idea. Mistaken idea. It's tremendously sad and tragic. Again, a complete misunderstanding of the Truth that Christ commands those who would follow him to obey him. Because that's exactly what it means to be Lord. He's to be followed with absolute obedience. He's to be absolutely submitted to in in his authority. 
And if you call Jesus Lord, then that means you're no longer in charge of your life. If you call Jesus Lord, that means you're no longer in charge of your life, your desires, your ambitions, your goals, your objectives. Every relationship you have, every possession you own, no longer belong to you. They belong to Christ. And Christ is going to condemn those who honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And again, the Bible doesn't know anything about two kinds of Christians, two classes of Christians. Again, those who merely, quote-unquote, accept Jesus as Savior and those who are more advanced and acknowledge his lordship, believers only and then true disciples. The Bible doesn't use that language. That's a false dichotomy. A.W. Tozer, in his book entitled, I Call It Heresy, says this, The Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. He will not divide his offices. You cannot believe on half Christ. We take him for, for what he is, the anointed Savior and Lord, who is King of kings and Lord of all lords. He would not be who he is if he saved us and called us and chose us without the understanding that he can also guide and control our lives. The Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. So again, true disciples, true followers of Christ, they obey Christ. Because Jesus Christ is King of kings and he is Lord of lords. He's God come in the flesh. Therefore, he has to be, he must be obeyed by those who claim to follow him. Luke 6.46, the Lord talking himself. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not, say, do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So again, if you're a true follower of Christ, truly united to Christ, a true branch, he's Lord, you're the slave. He has absolute authority over you. You abandon everything to pursue him. You abandon everything to please him. He's now the absolute ruler in your life. He is the master, your master. He's the one with absolute sovereignty. He is the one who has absolute right of determination over every aspect of your life. He has dominion over you. That's the relationship the Bible puts forward as our relationship to Christ the Savior. And I really believe that one of the great reasons why the church in the West today is so weak, so anemic, makes so little impact on the world around it or upon the culture in which it finds itself with the job of being salt and light because, is because we have many who name the name of Christ, but they're not true followers of Christ. And there are a lot of people who have been deceived. There are many false followers of Christ, many people who have, quote-unquote, accepted Jesus. And then they move on with their own life and they do their own thing and they are still in charge of their own life. They submit to no one or nothing except themselves. Well, a person who's a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ commits themselves to Christ every day in total. And they follow Christ to the best of their ability because of who he is. He is the Savior and the Sovereign Lord. And a true believer, a true follower of Christ, willingly gives up everything to do so because a genuine believer understands the fact that he is a slave of Christ, that Jesus is the Lord. Now again, if Jesus Christ is Lord and he is, then the one who has absolute power, absolute ownership, absolute possession, he unquestionably has the right to command you.
That's what the word Lord means. If Jesus is Lord, then he's the owner. He's the one who controls the person. He's their master. They're sovereign. Has the power to decide every aspect of that person's life. There's another word in the New Testament that's sometimes translated Lord, uh, sometimes as master. It's despotes. So you have despotes and kurios. They overlap in their meaning. They can be Lord or master. Kurios means sovereign Lord. Despotes kind of has the connotation of absolute Lord. In John 13, 13, Jesus takes the title Kurios for himself. John 13, 13, you call me master or you call me teacher and Lord. And you are right for so I am. So again, if you're a true follower of Christ, he's the Lord. You again, you're his slave. He has absolute authority over you. You abandon everything to pursue him. You want to please him only. He's the absolute ruler in your life. He's your master. He's your sovereign. You're his slave. The word doulos, again, slave actually occurs about 130 times in the New Testament text, but you don't see it there because it's often mistranslated either as servant or bondservant. And the reason is, not to go into a, a lot of discourse on that issue, but the reason is that the New, Trans- New Testament translators for a long time, in the English especially, uh, have said there's so much baggage with the term slave uh, that most of the translations fail uh, to uh, translate it properly. There's about six different words, I think, in the New Testament for uh, servant that could be used, but doulos isn't one of them. Doulos appears about 130 times in the New Testament. And doulos, every time it's uh, written down there, it only means one thing. It means slave. And again, a slave is someone who's bought, someone who's owned by another. A slave is a person who has no legal standing or rights, no freedom, no autonomy. A slave serves someone else because he's owned by someone else. That's exactly the phraseology that Paul used of himself in the New Testament. He referred to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. Likewise did James. Likewise did Peter. Likewise did Jude. John in the book of the Revelation, he says, we're all slaves of Christ. So that's the New Testament language for the believer. But we don't understand that. We don't understand that in part because we've been robbed of the word doulos, again, by almost every translation because of the, again, negative connotations and rightfully slow towards uh, towards uh, slavery. We don't understand the concept of, uh, of a slave and master to the extent that we should because of the weak theological teaching in many of our, cho- our churches uh, that refuses to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we fail to understand the greatness of the statement that Jesus makes here in verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Now, I spent all that time, whether you think it's a literal lot, but I spent all that time so that you could understand the greatness of that one statement. We were slaves... But Christ has elevated us to position of friends, an exalted position, a gracious position. Again, only one person in the entire Old Testament was given that title, Abraham. There are a couple different references to Moses being treated as a friend, but that title of the friend of God is only to Abraham in the Old Testament. So in a right relationship, an understanding of our relationship to the, to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we're his slaves. We're called to do his bidding, but he gives us access to his heart. 
He gives us access to his plans. Verse 15 goes on and says, For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You know, there's a lot of people out in the world that don't understand the Bible. But a lot of you in this room do. We understand the Bible. We understand the person of Christ. Why? We've been given the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16. God in his kindness has opened our hearts to receive the truth. We are now called by Christ his friends. How did we get there? Not by anything we did. Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, right? We can argue all day, but it's pretty straightforward. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Chosen by Christ to be his intimate friends, to have his mind revealed to us so we might have understanding. We did not choose him. He chose us. Why? Why would he do that? Love. He's loved us. He's loved us eternally. He's loved us in time. Verse 13 again. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Again, he's going to demonstrate that in just a few hours. To a fuller understanding that they can never comprehend here at the moment. Verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So here's this matter of obedience again. And as we work our way through the text, we'll see how important the issue of obedience is. Because the invitation to friendship with Christ is based on one condition. And again, that one condition is your obedience to him. Now, on a purely human level, peer-to-peer, we see friendship as equality. We don't think in terms of demands or commands or submission uh, to one in authority. But that's exactly the relationship we have here because Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God incarnate. He is no mere man. And again, verse 14, you're my friends if. You're my friends if you do what I command you. Again, the only proper response from a slave to a master in the scenario is to be obedient. Jesus says, look, you can be my friend, but then you must do everything that I ask you to do. And again, Jesus may call us his friends, but he's still our Lord. We serve him in obedience. He may no longer call us slaves, but we are indeed the slaves of Christ. Because again, anywhere you have a master, anywhere you have a Lord, you always have a slave. And that's why we need to understand that we cannot just pay lip service to the idea that Jesus is Lord. The reality, the truth is, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's your Lord, your Savior, and your Master, if you are His slave. And if you are His slave, then you will follow Him in obedience. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, you are not your own, you have been bought with a price. And again, Christ was incredulous with those who gave lip service to the insincerity of their words. Luke 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Because genuine faith produces obedience. Genuine faith demonstrates itself in behavior. Faith that says it believes yet does not obey is really unbelief. 
right? Faith that says it believes, yet does not obey, is unbelief. See the devil, for an example. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you who practice iniquity, you who practice unrighteousness. To believe that someone could be a true Christian, while the entire pattern of their life, their whole lifestyle, their whole value system, their beliefs, their speech, their attitudes, the entire entirety of their life marked by a stubborn refusal to obey Christ, a refusal to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's evidence of false faith. That's evidence of false belief. The writer of the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5, 9, having been made perfect, he became to all who obey him the source of eternal salvation. He's speaking about Christ. Christ having been made perfect, he becomes to all who obey him the source of eternal salvation. I guarantee you that Jesus Christ is not the source of eternal salvation for those who are still in rebellion against him. And you'll never find any credible evidence in the history of Christianity in this in doctrine or devotion from the time of the earliest church all the way out through the years of the Protestant Reformation and at least about 350 years after that, any kind of idea or notion that you can call yourself a Christian and you can refuse to submit yourself to Christ as Lord and submit yourself to Christ's Lordship, you will not find that. It's not there in church history. It's a modern idea. It's not found in Scripture. It just merely reflects the shallowness and the spiritual poverty of the evangelical church in the time in which we live. Because Jesus Christ is Lord. And because Jesus Christ is Lord, if you're repentant and place your faith in him, you're his slave. And that claim for the Christian to be a slave, there's no need to shy away or attempt to soften that truth for the believer. And for those who follow Christ, Christ demands again your unconditional surrender, your unconditional obedience. He commands that you would yield your life to him completely unconditionally, unreservedly to him. Not just as Savior, but as both Lord and Master. Again, Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to the disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's a call to death. In the New Testament context, and I don't want to get too much into this in the morning, but in the New Testament context, when you're calling someone to repent and place your faith in Christ, to say Jesus Christ is Lord, they understood it. This guy that has just been executed as a criminal, that the Romans have hung on a cross, you want me to come and not say Caesar is Lord? You want me to say Jesus is Lord? A slave? You want me to be a slave? They understood it in the context. We're so far removed from it and so theologically poor that we don't get it when he says, no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you friends. It is an exalted title. Why? Because of the love of Christ. Nothing in us. <laughs> you didn't choose me. I chose you. I chose you. I'm the one who's in charge here. I think that kind of truth humbles us. Humbles us. The hymn writer says, I scarce can take it in, right? I can, I can, 
hardly understand how God would be so kind to me through the person of Jesus Christ when I'm so undeserving. Therefore, because he is, I'm going to what? I'm going to stop and praise him and give him thanks. Always. It's okay to be the slave of Christ because he's a benevolent master. He's one who loves us. Again, one who now calls us his friends. No longer do I call you slaves, but I've called you friends. Now, I've run completely out of time, but let me at least give you the outline for the next time, Lord willing. The four characteristics, you can just see them there, and I'll just read through the text very quickly, and you can see there, there, and Lord willing, we'll pick it up. What are the characteristics of those who are really friends of Christ? The friends of Jesus. The friends of Jesus love each other. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. So the friends of Jesus love each other. The friends of Jesus, second point, will be uh, they obey him. They obey him. Again, verse 14, you're my friends if you do what I command. It's pretty simple. Third point, the friends of Jesus have the privilege of knowing divine truth. Verse 15, no longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. We have the privilege of knowing divine truth. And then again, the last one, the friends of Jesus have been specifically chosen by him. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask and the Father, ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command, me, command you that you love one another. All right, Lord willing, we'll begin to work through that next time. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for this truth, um, this look at, again, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ and the, what does it mean to be the fact that we're a slave and he's the, he, he's the Lord, the master. Uh, again, in the context of false faith, in, in the context of the apostasy of Judas, who looked like he was part of Christ, but in reality was a betrayer, an apostate. Again, Lord, I don't know how the message is received, but again, it's a, a hard message, a, a warning message, but again, a warning out of kindness, a warning out of love uh, to stop and examine ourselves as the scripture calls us to do, to make sure of our relationship with you, make sure there's signs of life, signs of righteousness, that we follow you as Lord and Savior, obviously not perfectly because we're still men in unredeemed flesh, but... Our hope is in you, our great hope. And for those of us who look at our life and we say, well, you know, I'm not perfect, but I love a Savior. I know he's transformed and changed me. I love him as Lord, and I want to be obedient to him, and I want to do everything I can in my life to honor him. We thank you for that. I thank you for that great gift of salvation, transformation that comes only by grace. Grace alone through faith alone in the person of Jesus Christ alone who has transformed and changed this world took a group of ragtag fishermen and common ordinary men and through the proclamation of the truth he turned the world upside down and we're desperate in the time in which we live for another outpouring of the truth and the outpouring of the holy spirit this world is in a mess 
And the only answer is the person of Jesus Christ and the only people who understand him and know him are us whom we have saved. So help us to be faithful slaves. Obedient to the command to take the gospel to the nations. To call men and women to repent and place their faith in Christ as mankind's only hope. Thank you for allowing us to gather this morning. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.